Again, I am uh, I'm very thankful and humble uh, to be able to be here uh, this morning in the pulpit. I appreciate uh, Brother Scott and the pastoral staff allowing me to uh, be here and to preach to you all this morning. Uh, and so as we uh, go forward, uh, we'll ask this question, uh, is it possible if you mess up or blow it to be restored? We live in a, and this was a term, and I just admit, I'm, I think I have become this person. I don't keep up with everything like I used to. I'm like going, something has happened to me. But there's this term that's been called cancel culture. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Cancel culture. And so the idea of cancel culture is this. There is a standard that everybody should have. And then if you have done something, like say that you tweeted something 12 years ago, say that you uh, stated something in your past, say that you had something there and somebody goes back and they read it and maybe it was vile, maybe it was horrible. We're not talking about that, but when somebody, it's been brought up and that person says, I, I shouldn't have said that, I, could, I, I messed up, I've changed my views. The idea for people is this, nope, you tweeted it, Nope, you put it on Facebook. Nope, you said it. And thus, you can never be a part of this culture again. You are not worthy. It's interesting because I was reading of an entertainer, and one of the things that she brought out was she said, we don't have a way in our society for people that have been canceled in order to find a way back. They just, if it happens, it happens. And the thing that had bothered her was this. She said, because she had a friend that had been canceled, he had drifted off into a camp and didn't say what or what it was that she totally disagreed with, but she said, but at least they were accepting. Now, let's just get this clear. This idea of canceling out is nothing new. It's always existed in any institution that he is human beings, right? We find that this can happen at work. This can happen if you don't do the right things or say the right things. People will get rid of you and end your career. We have found this in politics. We have found this in the church. True. Now, let me say this. There is a standard. Let's not act like there's not a standard. God has a standard. Here's what we need to find. God's standard is not about canceling people and getting rid of people. It is to turn them that they would come back and know the love of him. And at any point in time, at any point. So is it possible to be restored, to recover when you've blown it, when you've messed up, when you have done something that you know is vile and everybody else points to you that it's vile, is it even possible to come back or is it done and your reputation is done? Today's title is God Seeks to Restore the Fallen. Now, last week, as Brother Scott was talking about it and as the sermon was preached, to talking about that Israel, Israel doing great, kinda. And then all of a sudden they said, we want a king. And God had told them, you don't want a king. I'm your king. If you have a king, the king is going to take your sons, your daughters. He's going to take your wealth. He's going to take a portion of all this. There's nothing you can do about it. You're supposed to be different than the other nations. I'm supposed to be your king and lead. This will be the consequence if you do it. 
And they were like, no, we want a king. We don't care about that. It'll be great. Okay. So God finally says, that's what you want? Fine. You can have your choice. These things will happen, and these are the consequences. Well, as the first king shows up, it is Saul. And Saul is this, I mean, he is like the perfect kind of king setup. He's tall, he's strong, good-looking, powerful, great warrior. All the things that you would be looking at, all the things that when you look on the outside, you say, that's a king. But Saul, we find out that Saul did not have a correct understanding of what his position was supposed to be. And it's not because he misunderstood, it's because he was arrogant and wanted to have it on his own terms. The king of Israel, even in this moment, was supposed to be able to only go where God told him to go. The prophet would hear from God and speak to him. Sometimes the king could hear from God, but the king was never supposed to do anything without God leading. Saul decided that, you know, I know exactly what's supposed to happen here. Aren't you glad we're not like that, right? We always listen to God. We never take things into our own hands, right? It's a little sarcasm there. So here it is. Saul knows that the Israelites are supposed to defeat the Philistines. Knows it. But instead of waiting for God of when and how, he decides to go start a fight and attack a fort. Everybody's excited, and then all of a sudden the Philistines are kind of, you know, they don't take too kindly to that, and they're upset, so they're starting to muster. Well, all of Saul and all the warriors and all the people around are like going, they were like when they attacked, yay! And then all of a sudden they're like going, "Uh uh-oh. And so they start to get scared. And everybody starts drifting away. It was a good moment until the tension came. And then everybody starts drifting away. Now, somewhere in the midst of all this, Samuel has told Saul there's going to be a sacrifice that God will do, but it's going to be seven days, and don't do anything for that seven days. So as the days pass, the people are kind of slithering away. And Saul, in his mind, the only thing he can think about is, my plan is going up in smoke. I can only do this with my power base. I can only do what I'm supposed to do with what... So seven days comes about, and Saul says, I'm losing too many people, and so thus, I'm going to sacrifice because God needs a sacrifice, I'll do it. And so he does the sacrifice of the animal. And guess who shows up right after that? Samuel. And Samuel looks at Saul and says, why did you do this? God had told you to wait, to trust him, but you did not. And Saul did this. Well, people were leaving and people were running off and we're losing everything and the battle's getting strong and so I had to do something because if I didn't do it, it was going to be bad. Now, I don't know if that's really how Saul sounded. But I will say this. Usually when we are confronted and we don't take responsibility for what we've done... Isn't that how we sound? Well, the reason I couldn't do it is because this was happening at work and this person was doing this and I had to do something and it was just not fair. And the entire time, we know what God wants us to do. But we instead focus on the problem and the pressure instead of how God tells us to stand and trust Him. Right? Well, maybe you don't sound like a whiner, but I just want you to know it sounds like a whiner to God. Can we all admit that? 
We all sound that way. We just, we don't think of it that way, but it's true. And so pretty much Samuel looks at Saul and says this, you won't have an heir to go on your kingdom. It'll just be you now. And that's it. I would have put you up there and there would have been a dynasty of your sons and you can have known what it is to be pleasing to me in this relationship, but your lineage is done. You'd think that Saul would have figured it out. But then we get to Samuel 15. And then we have this moment where God has called Saul and the Israelites to go against Amalek and the people there and to wipe them out. Men, women, children, cattle, everything. Now, this seems like such a crazy thing to say because it's like, oh, how can God say that? Now, Please hear me because I know it's a difficult passage in the Bible, but I want to give, uh, give you an idea of something right now, okay? I want you to think of something right now. None of us in here want to take somebody's life, I'm hoping, right? Nobody in here wants to take somebody's life, I am hoping. But if somebody broke into my home with a gun and was threatening to shoot my family, Would I be wrong to stop that person and defend my family? I wouldn't be. Even biblically, there's a moment where there is a protection. It's not a revenge, but it is a moment of protection. Now, if I go after the person in revenge, I'm wrong. But in that moment, if there's something happening, if I were to do nothing, what would we think? If I were to just let and do nothing, what would we think? Why, did you, why didn't you stop them? You had the ability. Why didn't you stop them? Now, here's what we have in this moment. For 400 years, Amalek is just a king that's been on a lineage with the Philistines and the Amalekites for four centuries. In the four centuries, this is what it has looked like with them. I'm looking around and scanning to see how graphic I can get, and so I'm going to try to be a little bit more not graphic, but hopefully you'll get it. Just You can nod your head. So first and foremost, here's what we have. Here's who they believed. Their God was El. The Amalekite God was El. One of the gods was El. And El had three wives. His three wives were his sisters. Can you see a problem there? Can you see how that could end up causing issues throughout your people? Not only that, But also this, a form of the worship that they had with El, I don't know if it was with Molech, and I don't know if it was with Dagon or those, but within that, there was also the worship, and there were priests and priestesses that were in these temples. And the way that you met El was there would be some physical euphoria with these priests, if you're catching what I mean. And this was taking place. And I don't know if these priests and priestesses, if they were chosen or accepted it or what, but you can think about in a way that the abuse that would be taking place there. Not only that, but you would have another God by the name of Molech. And in Molech, there was a cast iron uh, or bronze or whatever it was at that point in time, metal image of Dagon And his hands would be cupped like this, and they would stoke a fire within this statue. 
And in order to receive the blessings at times from him, from the land and everything else, they were to take their newborn child and place that child, you kind of hopefully get the idea, but as the parents had to offer that child, they were not allowed to weep or cry. They had to dance and celebrate. If they were to cry, they would not receive the blessing and could even, if I understand it correctly, even receive a penalty or punishment. But as this was taking place, they would beat the drums louder in order that you could not hear the commotion going on. Do you kind of understand why I'm being a little bit, just in case, vague? Do you understand the nastiness of this culture? And, it, and now this culture was coming against Israel as they were coming into the promised land. And they weren't just trying, they were going to wipe the Israelites out. Now, we're not talking New Testament times in the church. We're not talking about now. This was a different time in a different place of what was going on in an imperfect world. We know that God would not have this anymore, but we realize this. At that moment, at that time, God was speaking and saying this. They are going to either wipe you out or they're going to draw you away from me. They God had gone to the Amalekites for 400 years trying to get them to repent of Baal, of El, of Molech, and they got stronger for them. So he finally said, wipe them out. But Saul, when Saul went and he conquered He took Amalek and he decided to hold him prisoner. Why? Because Saul, as the most kings, was going to parade him out in front to show how great Saul was. And they kept the best of the sheep and the cattle because they were going to keep it, sacrifice it unto God because he wants an offering. When Samuel confronted him, Samuel looked at him and he said this, Why did you disobey the Lord? You wanted to do this for your own ego, for your own glory. You wanted to do this for yourself. Yeah, but I got this as an offering. I don't want your offering. I want your obedience. And when that happened and and Saul was rebuked, when Saul was rebuked, then all of a sudden he says, oh, I've sinned, I've sinned, I've sinned. But he wasn't repentive. He just didn't like the consequences that were coming his way. He wasn't sorry for what he had done and broken the Lord. He was sorry that he'd gotten in trouble. He was sorry that he got found out. So when he grabbed Samuel's robe, begging that this wouldn't happen, he tore him. And Samuel looked at him and said, the kingdom shall be ripped from you. You won't even figure it out on the last of your days. Isn't it interesting at times that you and I, we know the difference at times when we're really sorry for what we've done or we just don't like the consequences that's happening to us. Anybody struggle with that? There's moments that I argue with God because I beg Him, well, don't take away this thing. When God's like going, what you should be broken about is the fact that you've sinned against me in relationship. 
You want this thing over intimacy with me. Saul will not find restoration. But it's not because God doesn't offer it. It's because Saul doesn't want it on God's terms. He wants what he wants. Now let's change it and think about David. David, David is going to become the next king. And it's a little bit different with David. David is chosen as a, the youngest of the children. He's young. He's been told he's going to be king. But David is a man after God's own heart. He wants to do only what God wants him to do. He doesn't want to go before him. He wants to follow God completely. So when God sends the Israelites against the Philistines and Goliath, God has sent them. But everybody else starts to freak out and get scared. But David shows up and he goes, who's that guy? Why are you letting him talk this way? I'll go take him. Why does David say that? Because God has already said to go take him. David has confidence in what God has said. David is a warrior. Again, we're not talking about Christianity. This is a different time and a different place of how God was working at this imperfect time. That's what was going on. Christianity, is, it's the same God, but it's a different time of what's going on. We're not Israel. But in the midst of these battles, David is an amazing warrior, better than Saul. And Saul, as he becomes jealous, tries to kill David, not once but twice. And David could have made the excuse, I'm going to be king anyway, might as well take him out. But what does David do? God has not told me to lay a hand on God's anointed. I will not touch God's anointed. It will be God that chooses when to remove him, but it will not be me. And David never, ever touches God's anointed. He is a man after God's own heart, only wants to do what God wants him to do. And thus, he is blessed over and over and over again with success. But then we come to a moment. David is king. He is a man after God's own heart. He has done what God wants him to do. But then the Bible tells us that at one point in time is the time of war for kings. But David decides to stay at home. And as he's at home, he should be out in battle. He sees a woman. And as he sees her bathing, he inquires about her, has her brought to him, knows that she is married, and commits adultery. Then... He knows he's done a bad thing. Well, let me take that back. Actually, he doesn't know he's done a bad thing. I'll change that. She gets pregnant, and he doesn't want to get found out. Two different things. So he finds out she's pregnant, and so then he says, there's got to be a way to cover this up because I'm the king. Sends for her husband to come home. Husband doesn't cooperate. And so finally David's like, She's going to give birth. This is going to get found out. The best way to do is to cover it up. And so thus, I'll send her husband into battle, and then I'll make her my bride, and then nobody will know. Problem solved. Husband's killed. David marries. David lives in this for a year. 
Then we get into 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now think about this for a moment. David has committed two sins, adultery and murder. And according to the Old Testament law for Israel at that point in time, he could have been killed. Those are two sins that you could be killed for, adultery and murder. And yet, here's something that ends up being beautiful. God sends Nathan to talk with David. God doesn't turn his back. He sends Nathan to David to get David's attention. He came to him and said to him, this is Nathan, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he bought it He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So here this man has plenty of stuff, but he goes to this man who only has the one lamb, takes it, slaughters it even though it was dear to him and serves it to his guest. Verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David still understood that there was a righteousness, a rightness, what was right and what should be done. And thus he was angry and upset that this injustice had happened. And he said, that man did what to this man who didn't deserve it? He deserves to die and he deserves to pay for what he's done. David knows what's right and wrong. David knows what's right and wrong. He knows God's standard. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Isn't it interesting how we can point out other people's flaws, but it's hard to see our own? I'm amazed sometimes at the righteous indignation we have with people, what they have done and how they have done it. There is a standard that is right and wrong, 100%. And there are moments that we should be fired up when there is injustice done. But let's be careful to understand, we should be fired up because it's God's standard, not ours. Who has lived up to God's standard? So if you want to get all indignant, what happens when you don't live up to the standard? We are called to promote God's standard and point people to God, not sit on his throne and talk about how, how dare you? Well, how dare you? How dare me? Nathan was coming to David. Even though you're king, you are not on the throne. God is. You are the man. You are the one that has done this. You are the one that's done the injustice. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The Lord looks at David and he tells him, you have done this. And now there are consequences. Church, why do you think God tells us to not be in habitual sin? We know that we're going to struggle with sin, but not to continue to choose sin. Why does he tell us that? One, because it's how we love God to be obedient to him and relate to him. Two, as we sin, it sometimes either brings a doubt to our salvation or makes us forget what we were even saved to begin with. We were saved from our sin, not saved in order to sin. We died to sin, as Paul said. How can I live in it anymore? But the other thing is this. When we sin and we continue to not repent, there are consequences for our sins. There are consequences when we disobey God. Anybody in here still living with consequences from sin? Nobody wants to raise their hand on that one. I will. Still consequences. Child of God, beloved of God, he loves me. But he's not taking away all of my consequences. Some of them I am still living with because I made choices to disobey God. Now, hang on, because there's hope. I don't want to leave that. Everybody's like going, boy, Sean, this is a really depressing sermon. Hang on, there's hope in the midst of all this. But let's get out the truth. There's hope. But there are consequences, but there's hope. Let's go on. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. David ends up saying the same thing that Saul says. I have sinned against you. But Saul said it because I've sinned. I don't want to have these consequences. But David says, I have sinned against you. And here's how he responds differently. He knows that the child that's born to him, Bathsheba, God has said that that child is going to die. And David could have raged and been mad, pointed his finger at God and done everything else, but yet he went in the midst of prayer. And he pleaded with God. He didn't eat. He didn't sleep. He pleaded with God for the child's life for days. And the servants were very concerned. They were like, he's, he's lost his mind. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't do anything. What? 
And then all of a sudden they find out that the child dies. And the servants are all going, he's going to lose it. He's going to harm himself. He's going to, if he couldn't handle himself here, this is going to be horrible. We can't tell him. What are we supposed to do? They're all conspiring about what to, instead of telling him, they're doing all this. And all of a sudden, David is aware enough and he goes, the child is dead. And they were like, yes. And David gets up, washes, eats, drinks. It's in his right mind, it would seem. And his servants go, why? You were so upset, but now, why are you so peaceful? And David says, I pleaded with the Lord as if he might change his mind. That I would still plead for the child. But God's will is done. I, that child will not come to me. But I will go to that child. David accepted the consequences. He didn't rail against God. He didn't do all this. He accepted that this is what it is. The most important thing to David was intimacy with his God. To be able to talk with his Lord. Not to get what he wanted, but to be able to fully come before the Lord and to be in relationship with him. You know, I have realized a lot of times that people, they give up on prayer because they don't get what they want. They don't make time for prayer. They don't talk with God. Why? Because it doesn't seem to make any difference. I don't seem to, my prayers aren't answered. I don't seem to get what I want. Could you imagine if you, uh, if you function that way with a friendship, with a marriage? I talk to them if I get something from them. But if not, eh, it's just a waste of time. What do you call that? What do you call that when somebody, the only reason they hang out with you is because they get something from you? What do you call that? You're a user. You're being used. You are a user and you're using somebody. David wasn't using God to get what he wanted. The great reward was not what David got, it, it was the Lord Himself. The relationship here. And it says, then David, in verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And Jedidiah in this moment means beloved of the Lord. Beloved of the Lord. The name came about not as God is cursed or God, beloved of the Lord. David knew still of God's great love even though he had messed up. Even though he had blown it, God's love was still there. Now, church, let me ask you this. Let's, let's look at this for a moment. Sometimes I know we go into Old Testament and it's so foreign because you're like, well, but that's not how Jesus is. But we are looking at something of God, working in an imperfect time of culture at that point in time, of dealing with things and bringing about. What does that look like for the church, though? God is still the same, but we function in different times and ways. But he is always the same. What does that mean for us right now as followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ? The first one is this. We recognize the need for grace universally. Who needs grace? I need grace. 
But you know what I also recognize? And please hear me as we say this. Other people around me need grace. You know the reason why we are so torn up right now and our nation is so crazy right now and our world is so crazy? One, there is a standard. We don't ever back down from a standard. But let me share with you right now. Everybody is sitting on their throne pointing the finger at somebody else by how great they are and the other person's horrible. There is no grace. None. You know why? Because we don't believe people can change. They will always be that way. In a sense, if we don't watch it, we're actually practicing cancel culture. Right? Oh, I don't want to think of it that way, but it's true. Look at what they do. Look at what they think. Look at that. Do you have grace to pray that God may change somebody's mind, heart, maybe even yours? If you're going to stand against people, we can stand against principles. We need to be praying for people that can be changed by God. Recognize the need for grace universally. Two, when I am wrong, listen to correction willingly. Think about what David did. David in this moment, Nathan comes to him. David could have looked at Nathan and said, you will not speak to me that way. I'm going to have you executed for talking to the king that way. I will shut you down. I'm not going to listen to you. But David listened willingly to correction. Listened willingly. Saul, Saul didn't listen willingly. Always made excuses. Do you make excuses or do you receive the correction willingly? Do you even receive correction or do you think you're always right? Three, for the believer in Christ, confess sin sincerely. God, I have sinned against you. Not, I don't want to get this bad consequence, God. Please don't take this away from me. That's not repentance. That's not repentance. Confessing sin sincerely is saying this. I blew it. I did it. No excuses. I take ownership. I did it. I did it. When we're blaming everybody else, I'm just going to make this real easy. I know nobody likes this. Nobody can make you do anything. Nobody. Nobody can make you do anything. Tell you what, made me so mad. I went out and I, I, I wrecked my vehicle. No, they didn't make you wreck your vehicle. You were angry. You could have binged Netflix for four hours when you were angry. You could have gotten five tubs of ice cream and ate all of them in one sitting because you were angry. You could have decided to do a thousand push-ups because you were angry. You could have gone out and played golf for nine hours because you were angry. Nobody causes you to do anything. You make your own choices. Nobody can make you do anything. When you confess, it's me, and I did this, God. Nobody else's fault. I did this, and I have sinned against you, God. Four, accept consequences humbly. There are times that we don't like what has happened to us. And there are injustices that have happened to us, right? It's legitimate. But I'm going to share with you. 
when you have inflicted your own consequences, you can either stew or be upset or be angry or get depressed or do whatever, or you can say this, God, I did it, and so this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm dealing with. Humbly, I understand these are the consequences. Now, let me share with you why this is so important. Let me share with you why it's so important. And here's the hope in all this, church. When we accept our consequences humbly, it's amazing what God can do and restore and bring about things we never thought possible. I want to give you an example. So I've shared this with you before. I'm going to share it again. My parents uh, divorced when I was five. And it was a very difficult time. I shared this in the first service. It was very painful, very difficult, angry, upset, rage-filled. And probably to an extent, I hated them for what they did to me. As I got older, God got a hold of me. And I remember, I've never audibly heard God, never audibly heard, but God really put a conviction on me. They made their choice, but your rage is your fault, Sean. That's you. That's on you. You need to forgive. You need to forgive them. Well, they didn't say they were sorry. That was my excuse. When they say they're sorry, I'll forgive them. And that's where you start reading through Scripture and God was like going, I forgave you before you ever asked for it. You just had to receive it. So I remember, I asked God to help me. I forgave my parents. Something crazy happened in that moment for me. I found my life again. found hope, found peace found joy that I had lost. But then something else weird happened, and it was so crazy. This is when I'm in my 30s, 30s, five all the way to 30. I'm preaching at a church in Campbellsville. My dad and my stepmom are sitting in the back row like good Baptists, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about back there, right? My dad and my stepmom are sitting back there And then my mom and my stepdad walked in. They live in E-Town. Parents live in Campbellsville. And I was like going, oh, this is going to be fun today. Great. World War III. Revelation. Jesus coming back. My mom looked at my stepmom. My stepmom looked at my mom. And they sat together in the same pew. And they worshiped God together. I'm going to tell you something. There are sins that have consequence. There are sins that have consequence. But I praise God for a God that can redeem consequences and can do things that only he can do. I did not realize what God had been doing with my parents individually, as couples, and the four of them. 
Do you know how weird it is for me to all of a sudden when we have been able to do birthday parties pre-COVID time and all of a sudden I have my four parents sitting there now with aunts and uncles from different sides of the family, grandparents from the different sides of the family, all sitting there laughing, eating, and talking. That is not possible in a fallen world. It is possible in a fallen world that Jesus is Lord. Why do you accept the consequences humbly? Why do I have to accept that it was my rage and not just what's going on? Because when I did that, God was able to work. God can't work if I tell him, no, I'm on the throne. I'm justified. It's my way or no way. God cannot work in the midst of all that. He will not work in the midst of that. Why? It's not because he doesn't love you and me. It's because this, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. But what I want to give you is my restoration. Come unto me. The fifth point, receive restoration gratefully. Sometimes we go through moments and this is how we receive restoration. Well, I know that God loves me, but it's just I'm a horrible person and life is miserable and this is bad. And I tell you what, praise God, I got the joy of the Lord. But I'm a miserable person. There's not much gratefulness receiving there. Do you, do you understand what I... Have you been one of those people? I'm not just making this up, right? Is this too close to home? Nobody's going to answer, are they? Have you been one of those mopers around the church at times? Have you been one of those mopers? Nobody's going to answer, are they? I've been one of those mopers. Oh, my goodness, I've been one of those mopers. I wear my... I wear my uh, uh, emotions on my sleeve. You'll know. You will know. And I have moped. I guarantee I've moped in the church before. I've moped here. Sean, you doing okay? Oh yeah, I'm doing great. Praise the Lord. Right? But church, listen. We receive restoration gratefully. God is at work in our lives. And we find the joy, not in the consequences of what we're going through. We find the joy that our God has not left us. And that he loves us as we turn to him. No matter what. We find joy that God loves us. While we were still sinners, Jesus gets off their own stinking throne and puts God on there they will know forgiveness, love, the perfect relationship with God who desires to see us with him. But the only person that God cannot restore is the person that will not come to him on his terms. Jesus says, those who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. But what do they have to do? Come unto him. In the story of the prodigal. In the prodigal, he had to wake up from what he had done. He had to come to his senses. And he had to turn away from what he had done and go to God. And how did the father receive the son? Wide open arms running to him. Embracing him. Coming to him as soon as he turned away. So church, I'll ask you. One, do you know Jesus Have you sat on your own throne, canceling other people out, realizing that you 
Should have been canceled out, yet God loves you. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Jesus finds great worth within you. He finds great love and great worth within you. Would you come to know him? You are a sinner that needs need of salvation. God loves you. Two, are you a believer right now? And because of what you have done in the past or what somebody else has thought of you, you either have canceled yourself out or you feel canceled. Have you repented and gone with God to realize that he finds that you're not canceled? Well, Sean, what they say, it doesn't matter what they say. What does God say? What's your faith in? And the last one is this. Are you sitting on a throne canceling other people out? Do you look at people and say what they have done by choices or attitudes or decisions and you look at them and you stand against them as a person and you say that person is not, that they will never change, they will always be that way and thus I am superior, there's no hope for them. Now, church, we put boundaries on people because there is a right and wrong, right? Sometimes people are living in sinful ways that they are saying, I'm going to live however I want, and they come, and it can hurt us. There are boundaries we can put up with people that says, I love you, but you can't approach me on those terms. But let me share with you this. That's called a boundary, not a wall. When you put a wall up, you are saying this. You never can come to me at any point in time for any reason because you will never change. And thus, I am dignified and justified. But if you put a boundary, what you say is this. If I go to God and you go to God, that boundary can be raised and we can go to God together. Because I believe that God can change anybody. Do you have boundaries against people or walls? Do you believe that some people will never change? I'm just going to say this loving. If you believe and you've just said, I will never have relationships with that person, shame on you. Shame on me. That we've put a wall up telling God He can't change somebody. Jesus ate with sinners. The world had written off that said no, there's no way they could ever change. And yet... Sinner after sinner who sat with Jesus became a saint. The only ones who sat with Jesus that didn't become saints that we are aware of, except for maybe a few, were the Pharisees. And why could they not become saints? Because they would not receive the restoration that Jesus wanted to give. It's our choice that God graciously gives with us, gives to us. What will you do with your choice today? Let us pray. Father, as we come before you, Lord, whatever you need to do with your people, that you would do it. And Lord God, that we would seek after you, your heart, receive your truth in our lives. And Lord, we would live as how you call us to be. Those that need to know you, that they would come to know you. Those that need to repent and find restoration would do so this morning. And those of us that are sitting on a throne putting walls up against others, God. Break them down so that we would look like you. And it's in the name of Jesus and our God's people said, amen.